Hi there, and welcome to the show that's all about celebrating all the shapes, sizes, and colors of diversity as well as adversity, and seeks to inspire the world through authentic conversations that are both meaningful and relatable. Each episode, I deep dive into the extraordinary journey of an average yet super incredible person in the diversity space. We talk about everything from their personal accomplishments and or contributions to social impact to some of the adversity they've had to face along the way and the resiliency and tenacity that got them to where they are today. I'm your host, Tisha Gillespie, and this is Not Your Average Goat. Hello, goat fans, and welcome to episode 12 and the final episode of season one. This week, I am so excited to sit down with Jessica Williams, who has so many acronyms behind her name that I cannot list them all here. But she is an incredible woman, as you will come to find throughout this conversation. Jessica and I touch on so many sensitive topics, starting with the topic of school bullying and how detrimental it can be to children. And she talks about her own struggles with wanting to die as a child because of how challenging and hard bullying was for her. But we also talk about how it's so easy to evolve and to bully yourself when you are given the power of popularity. And we also touch on how difficult it is for children today to have a safe environment and escape bullying because of our always on digital world. Then we dive in deep to Jessica's struggle with alcoholism and this super dangerous reward system she put into place in college in order to get a 4.0 GPA. We also talk about all the rock bottoms that she had to hit along the way before she eventually reached her sobriety in January 2020, including a very risky DUI. We also talk about along the way how she used promotions and this I'm doing this so I'm okay mentality and how that got her through thinking that she was okay. And then we talk about how she eventually reached sobriety and how she is now dedicated to being sober out loud all the time and sharing her story with everyone. And on top of this incredible success, Jessica has also founded a company called Hidden Gem Career Coaching, which is on a mission to help women of color find upward mobility and new opportunities in the workplace. Without further ado. So we actually met on LinkedIn. I feel like nowadays it's becoming more and more common to just develop these relationships virtually, especially with the pandemic. And I remember there was a post that you put out in early July that I saw, and we were not connected at the time. So someone, one of my connections shared your post, which I was very thankful for, but you so courageously came out and shared that you were once a functioning alcoholic and, you know, shared some insight into your journey to becoming sober and with how much stigma that exists around alcoholism today, I I just felt so inspired by your post. And I thought that, you know, you just 100% leaned into vulnerability. And I'm sure that 
going on LinkedIn and sharing your experiences probably, you know, felt kind of free to just kind of rip the bandaid off. But at the same time, potentially how many people you were able to inspire by just sharing your story for people who might've been going through the same thing, might've known someone who was going to the same thing. And so of course, because your story is so reflective of what I'm trying to accomplish with my mission for Natural Average Goat, I had to reach out and I was so happy that you accepted my invitation and were open to having a conversation about the podcast. Absolutely. I think it's a really important topic and it affects a lot of people that, um, to your point, people don't want to actually talk about. Um, or if they do, there's a strong sense of shame. So I think this is an important conversation. One thing I love to do, because I love to kind of establish this baseline for who people were as children, because I think it's so interesting in speaking to how we kind of turned out today. And so I'd love for you, if you could just like time travel back to like eight, nine, 10 year old Jessica, what do you remember about her and her passions? And, you know, how is your personality different or maybe the same compared to today? So that was probably around the age I was bullied really, really, really badly in school to the point of like my parents thought about taking me out of school and homeschooling me for some time. Um, and so at this point, I was very shy, uh, really like did not trust being around people because I had been bu bullied so badly. And so I only felt safe when I was at home. And it got to the point where I told my parents like, Basically, I wanted to die because I didn't want to go to school. And that's when they took what I had to say very seriously, because for a child to tell you that they would rather die than go to school is very, very serious. And so um, I do remember telling my parents this and that and that is truly in that moment how I felt like I would rather die than go to school and deal with what I'm dealing with at school um, and be bullied and made fun of. And so I have a lot of empathy for students today that like go to school and then they're getting bullied online because that wasn't my experience when I grew up there. You know, there wasn't an online element to it. So I did feel safe when I left school. Um but I do look back and I have a heart for like anytime I see anything on TV where kids are being bullied, like it instantly like brings up raw emotion and like tears for me because that was definitely my experience as a kid. It's so interesting that you bring that up because I never really thought about the impact that the digital world has on, you know, that safety component for children. And yeah, you used to, I mean, I used to be able to go home and you know, if I had had a bad day or a bad encounter with someone, you know, I could, I could escape from it when I went home. But yeah, nowadays, I mean, so much social media, um, you know, every kid has an, has an iPhone or, or some kind of cell phone nowadays. I specifically remember feeling relief when I would get on the bus, like literally the act of getting on the bus to go home. It felt like, <sighs> like a relief, like I'm safe now. And it became, I definitely remember my parents like having conversations with this, with my teachers and with the school and with the administrators and um, even the other parents. Like it, it, it got to that point where there were so many people involved. I even remember at one time my grandparents coming up to the school, like it was almost, it was like the family undertaking because I really, you know, when you see a child change, like it started to morph my personality. Like I even started to change what I would wear to school. Like I became very, um, I used to be like wanting to learn. I didn't want to learn anymore. I was not interested in, I love reading. I've gotten back to that now as an adult, but I like was not interested in doing anything with school. Like my attitude towards school completely shifted. And it's sad to say, but I, I definitely think, you know, experiences like that, like childhood trauma 
then bleeds into things that happen when you become an adult. You know, I've been in the education space now career-wise for a while. And one of the companies that I worked at, one of the things that they did is offered students both public and private online school alternatives. And unfortunately, one of the big reasons why children or parents would decide to take their school or children out of a brick and mortar school and put them into an online version was because of bullying. And, you know, it's so sad that as a young child, especially elementary school, kids are suffering more and more with depression, anxiety. And, you know, one time a few years ago, my sister actually saw, you know, you know, children, I think, are are, are allowed to some level of privacy. But fortunately, my sister saw in my, my niece's journal one day that, you know, she was talking about committing suicide. And it was very, it was very disturbing. It starts so young. So if I'm being honest, I feel like that was probably the first sign of me having really depressive episodes, but it wasn't identified at that age. Like it wasn't something that my, I don't think that my parents would have known to even look for, but if I'm, if I'm, you know, it's easier to connect the dots looking back. As I look back, I was truly, truly depressed but it wasn't being identified as that. And as a person of color myself too, you know, I definitely had a few episodes growing up where I also, you know, had children, you know, mock me or, and things like that. It was that the main route for you for why the bullying was taking place. Oh, absolutely. So to give you context, I grew up in a super small town in the middle of East Texas. So very limited uh, other people of color. Um, so absolutely. And I remember you sharing with me, you know, some details about you. And it kind of makes sense now where you were talking about, you know, when I was in school, especially high school, like you were really just kind of focused on cheerleading and all kind of like the fun aspects of school and not necessarily the grades and the studying part. Do you think that, you know, the bullying was part of why you weren't so dedicated to your studies when you were in grade school? Oh, absolutely. And I think what's crazy is that so around, you know, eight, nine, 10 is when the bullying got really, really, really bad. This one individual ended up leaving the school district. And so by the time I was in high school, I had morphed myself. And you know how, you know, as people we transform, I had morphed myself into like the popular girl and that I was, you know, miss this and that because I was like the head cheerleader and I was doing all of these things. And I think part, you know, there's a lot of studies about with kids that are bullied then end up being the bully. Um, and that's exactly what happened. So I was bullied so severely and I look back and it's really sad, but then I morphed myself into, well, this person had power over me. And so if I have now have power over other people, then I won't feel the way they made me feel. Mm, yeah. Power, power is so powerful. I don't know a better way to put that, but yeah. Um, yeah. How did, how did you kind of eventually reconcile that? Did you, when did you eventually kind of realize like, Hey, I'm, I'm maybe I'm potentially turning into who these kids were when I was younger. I think around my sophomore year is when it like really dawned on me because I had a really close friend who uh, was not a part of it. And so she very much would say like, Hey, like maybe you shouldn't talk to people like that. Or like, why are you treating this person like that? And she pointed out to me, um, like, oh, you're acting like this individual. And it, it really dawned on me because I was like, no, I'm not. Like, I'm not 
like this person like physically harmed me. And I was like, well, I'm not hitting anybody. I'm not doing anything. She was like, well, you know, your words really hurt people. Um, and then it, it dawned on me and it became like a very like, oh, wow, I don't want to be like that person. So it's almost like a full circle moment when you are so severely bullied and you have this person in your mind and you know, you've made them out to be the monster. Um, but then you go around and do the same thing to other people. So, um, it definitely was a full circle moment. And I think that high school, junior, senior year is when I, I kind of almost not went back to the way I used to be because I, it wasn't like I was being bullied, but I definitely went back more to who I truly am and like letting people just be who they are and like not having to comment on things. But I think as teenagers, when you're in that 16, 17, it's like you want to be like everyone else. So, and of course, everyone else is doing things that, you know, are maybe not the most respectful thing that they could be doing. Um, so it, it just feeds up on itself. So you have to be the person to either stand up or um, there's a theory called the gray rock method, which is basically to be a gray rock around other people is to like basically not absorb their energy, like let them do what they're going to do, but don't be a part of it. And I actually think that's the method I started to take was like, okay, well, I'm just going to be the gray rock in this situation. I'm not going to stand up for people, but I'm also not going to be the one bullying them. After high school, you go to college and you major in psychology. I'm curious to know kind of where that passion for psychology came from and what did you initially envision your career looking like? Yeah, so there was definitely a shift in my thinking. As soon as I got to college, it like dawned on me like, oh, this is on you. Like, this is like the rest of your life. What are you going to do? And so, like you were saying, in high school, I cared nothing about my grades. All I wanted to do was pass so that I could cheer. Um, and then as soon as I got to college, it was like, oh, no, 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 that's not going to work anymore. I need a 4.0. So instantly, my, um, anxiety and like perfectionism kicked in into overdrive. And so part of me wanted to go into psychology because I wanted to be a, a psychiatrist. And so that was the ultimate goal. And part of that was because of things that had happened in my family unit with mental illness and the lack of support or the lack of insight, particularly I feel like in black communities. And so that was what I wanted to do. But like I said, it was like this mix of I'm on my own. I need to showcase that I can do this. And so I kind of kicked myself into perfectionist. I'm going to have a 4.0, but also almost wanting to do this for my own family. So I was always interested in psychology because of things that were happening in my own family. So I have several family members that are bipolar um, and one family member that is schizophrenic. And so that came into play in my thinking of like, one, I want to understand them. And two, there's such a lack of resources in the black community. I could be helpful in this way. That's so remarkable. And yeah, I think in addition to a lack of resources, there's just Unfortunately, this lack of care and empathy by healthcare providers for minorities. And it's so, it, it's so sad and so disgusting. And I imagine too, you know, there's, I think there's so many, you know, there's, there's stigma around mental health, I think in general, but I think when you break it down into the individual communities and say like, like, look at it from like the perspective of white America versus like minorities, I feel like there's this additional level of stigma where it stems from, I think, you know, sometimes comes from outside. I, I think there's just a, a lot of 
shame, as you mentioned earlier. And it's, it's so terrible that, you know, being a minority also means just, you know, sometimes having this like internal shame put upon you by people in your own culture sometimes. And I know that it's not necessarily intentional or it's just something that's been ingrained. Absolutely. And I think it's a, you know, a sentiment of like growing up, I remember knowing someone in my family was different, but we would just say, oh, they're just crazy. When yeah. really had a true mental health issue and diagnosis and all of that, but that was never discussed. It was just, oh, they're crazy. And so it's like, even that is so dismissive. So when you go, you go to college, you've hinted at this, you know, you, you know, kind of transform into, well, I guess the transformation started in late high school, but you're now kind of this, you know, high achiever in college. You want to get the 4.0. I believe you do end up getting the 4.0, <laughs> which is so awesome. You know, I I was definitely one of those people who's like, mm, no, GPAs don't really matter. You know, I'm okay with the B or a C. <laughs> but, you know, I think I think that's so incredible um, and that you were able to go through college and do that. But I know that it came at a very high cost for you. So can you talk to me like when that shift took place for you, how did that ultimately impact your lifestyle, you know, both from the good and from, you know, a bad perspective? Yeah. So definitely college is when I started the binge drinking. So I would go through these phases. And like I said, my, my eye was on the prize when it came to my grades. And it was very, very important to me, like the perfectionist, my perfectionist side peaked in college. Like this is when it came out to the extreme. So I would go through these periods where I would basically live in the library. Like they would literally kick me out because that is how much I was studying. So I would go through these rapid periods in the semester of I have to study, 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 get everything right. And then as soon as that was over, alcohol became the reward. So after a long day, or I got an A, or I did this project well, or I gave a great presentation, the reward became alcohol. And then I would go through these periods of when the semester was over, I would go out with my friends. So my friends would go through these periods where they wouldn't see me. And then when the semester's over, grades are done, I would be out partying, doing whatever I wanted to do and binge drinking. So it became a reward system. Like alcohol became my release and it also became my reward for anything good that happened. But it also wasn't just all the good. So if anything went wrong, I deserved a drink. And so that mentality, and I use that word because that is what I would say. I would say, I deserve a drink. Like, look, I made an A. I deserve a drink. Look, I did a great presentation. I deserve a drink. And it set up this reward system for me of drinking was a reward for me being good, quote unquote, or me being smart or anything good in my life. I deserve to drink for it. And so it set up this really dangerous system and it fed into the, you know, nothing's wrong with me because I'm making A's. I'm in college making A's. I'm the president of all these organizations. I'm doing all of these amazing things. So there can't be anything wrong with the fact that I'm drinking to access every night. Um, so it became this system and it became also like, it wasn't like I was hiding it. Um, I would drink in front of my parents. I would drink, you know, with my friends, like, and it became, everybody was just like, oh, Jessica's like the smart, you know, like smart, funny party girl. And so no one had a problem with it because it was the reward of, but you're so smart. So, um, it wasn't even like something I had to hide. It's interesting because it feels like from what you're sharing, it was almost like a double reward 
for you, you know, getting the drink and then also getting kind of the attention and recognition of how well you're doing. 100%. It was, it fed onto itself. I specifically remember uh, one of a, a close friend of mine was introducing me to someone like we were out and she said, oh, this is the smart friend. And literally they started calling me smart. My nickname in college was Jesse. So smart Jesse. And she would say like, oh, we don't see her for months. And then, you know, she comes back out and parties with us. And so it almost became like my brand. You get the 4.0 in, in college, but after you leave college, how does this reward system kind of follow you afterward? Oh, yeah, it definitely followed me. So when I left my undergraduate, which was in Texas, I, with my 4.0, got an amazing scholarship to go to the University of Sydney. So I moved to Sydney, Australia. So this became a new level of drinking because I was alone. So moving to another country was an amazing experience, but it also was very hard. Like I was very lonely in the beginning. I didn't know. I'd never even been to Australia. didn't know anyone. Once in a lifetime situation, but alcohol became my friend. Like before when I thought, you know, alcohol was a reward. When I moved to Sydney, alcohol became my friend because I didn't have any friends. So I would study like crazy and then just go home and drink and watch movies all night. And so it became like this was a friend to me. And I think this was the first sign of it becoming a problem or people saying like, hey, maybe you're doing too much. I remember one time I, uh, in Sydney, I got invited to this really nice banquet. They were giving awards to students and I got an award and it was an open bar. And I get, literally got so intoxicated that I like fell and like really, really hurt my knee. They had to like help me get home. I couldn't even walk. And this is at an award ceremony where I got an award for my academic achievements. Oh my goodness. That must have been tough for you. And I mean, thinking about it, probably the next day must have felt so shameful and embarrassing. How long did it eventually take for you to kind of realize, hey, Jess, maybe there's a problem here? Was it that moment or was there another moment that happened after that? No, no, no. It took quite a long time. And I would go through these phases. So this is when it like after that night, I remember thinking, okay, this is becoming an issue. I'm going to stop for a little while. So this is when the whole, I'm going to, I'm going to prove that there's nothing wrong with me because I can stop. So after that incident, I didn't drink for maybe two or three months. And that, that to me was proof that there was nothing wrong with me. So Mm -hmm. it started this cycle of me being like, I would, something would happen. I would get too drunk or I would embarrass myself. And then I would stop drinking for a while to prove quote unquote, that there was nothing wrong with me. So I'd go through these like, Hey, I'm not, going to drink for a month, but I'm telling you, if I said, I'm not going to drink for a month, you know, if I said, oh, in August, I'm not going to drink on September 1st at 1201, I'm drinking. So it became very like meticulous to me because I am, I am the type of person that, um, can do something that I don't want to do if there's going to be a reward, which is perfectly ties into how I was studying. So I could study for hours and the reward was I was going to drink. So I would do the same thing by showing that I didn't need to drink when I really did. Um, and so this went on for many, many years. So graduated with my master's, went on and got an amazing job. Um, and the reward, the thing is that my education and my job became the look I'm fine. So there can't be something wrong with me if I have a 4.0 if I have a master's degree, if I have this amazing job. And so it fed into that narrative. Wow. So when do you remember actually kind of having that breakthrough of, 
oh my goodness, maybe I'm struggling with alcoholism. This is actually, I'll tell you a funny story. Uh, so many years later, I am working for a really large organization as an HR business partner. And one day during lunch, I decided that I'm going to start researching rehabs. But if you had have asked me at the time, I would never have admitted that there was anything wrong. But intuitively, I started to know that there was something wrong. So I started researching rehabs and I laughed because I was researching rehabs, but I was very particular about I wanted to go somewhere where they had horses. I don't <laughs> know why. I just was like, I'm gonna, if I'm going to go to rehab, I'm going to go to a nice rehab. And so I found this amazing rehab in California on a horse farm. I called them and was like, hey, I just want to understand the process. Like, how does someone get in? What's the price? Da, 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 da. And I remember the lady on the phone was very kind. And I was asking her all these questions. And she's like, so, you know, are you the individual? Because I was basically asking it in like, a, I'm trying to help someone. But obviously, she's used to this. And so she's like, you know, who is it that you're trying to help? And so I said, oh, myself, but I don't think I'm ready yet. And she said, okay, well, like, let us know when you're ready. But this is how far I went knowing that like, hey, I probably need help. This was one week before I got a DUI. Yeah. So the week before I ended up getting a DUI, I was researching rehabs because intuitively, deep down in my soul, I knew that I needed help, but I would have never admitted that. So what what happened with the DUI? Was it just kind of like a slap on the wrist or what was the result? Yeah. So as we know, in the American system, money can make problems go away. And so that is exactly what happened. So I got arrested for DUI driving to my parents' house. So I have to give you context here and say that I live three hours from my parents. So I was actively drinking. So I had a Yeti cup full of wine. So I was already drunk, but I was drinking as I was driving. I made it three hours. So my parents live three hours away. I made it 10 minutes from their house and then got arrested. Um, so I look back and I put so many, many people in danger um, on that drive to their house. So got arrested. My parents got me out. This, if I'm being honest, was probably the first time my parents realized the extent of what was happening um, because I had to call them from jail and they're like, well, what happened? Like, how did this happen? And I'm like, oh, I drive, I been driving like this for many, many years. Like I do this all the time. This was just the first time that I got caught. And I, I have to give you the backstory of how I even got out because they just let me leave. Like I talked to the judge and I told her, she, she basically was like, what are you doing here? Like, who are you? What are you doing? So I was telling her like about my job and da, da, da. And she said, so you don't like, this was a big mistake. Like, I never want to see you here again. And I was like, I, you won't ever see me again. This, <laughs> I can guarantee you that you will never see me in this jail again. Uh, and so she just let me leave. Like I didn't have to do a bill. I didn't, I didn't do any, I just signed the documents and she let me walk out. So again, I it instantly was like, oh, I'm going to get out of this. Like, I'm going to get a great lawyer. I'm going to get this off my record. It's going to be like this never happened. And that's exactly what I did. I paid about $10,000 uh, to get this off of my record um, like it never happened. And so, but my lawyer told me when I called him, I said, hey, how do we get this taken care of? And he said, well, you need to start going to AA to show that you have a problem and that we can get this taken off your record and all that stuff. So when I got out of jail the next day, I went to an AA meeting, but I was not like, I was like, okay, I'm going to be sober because they said I have to be sober. 
But in my head, I was thinking, I'm not, um, I'm going to do this to get this off of my record. So at the time, it was all about, I want this off of my record. I don't want this little blemish to come back and haunt me. I want it off. So it's not like I just want to, you know, not guilty, blah, 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 blah. I want it expunged. And the way to get it expunged was he said I had to go to AA. So I went to AA. Um, so for three months, so this happened September 1st. For three months, I was sober. Then on New Year's Eve, I just, I consciously decided I was going to start back drinking. Um, and so I did, I started back drinking. And so this was January 1st, 2020. And for like 12 days, I went into like basically a bender where I was drinking all day, every day. If I was awake, I was drinking. Um, and it got to a point of very dangerous where my parents intervened and decided that I needed to get help. And so my sobriety date is January 13th, 2020. Um, and I look back and I should have gone to a hospital. I, me being the stubborn person that I am, I decided to detox myself at home, which was very dangerous. And I should not have done that. So if somebody's listening to this, don't do that. Um, if you are in the thick of alcoholism, you really need professional help. I could have died, um, because I was just at my house by myself. So I shouldn't have done it that way, but that was the, I think the GUI was the start of the rock bottom. It was, it, I needed that to show me that I, cause I was getting away with it. And so I, I think I needed consequences for me to realize what was, what I was doing to other people. Wow. Well, congratulations because it's almost been three years. So you, you said that you detoxed at home, unfortunately, did you end up going to that really cool horse ranch? <laughs> I did not. I like I legit just did it at home. Yeah. Um, I got a temporary sponsor and I basically I had taken off work for two weeks and decided I bas- I didn't tell them what was going on. I just told them that I was going through a health crisis and I needed time off. So I took two weeks off. So in the span of that two weeks is when I detoxed myself. I started, I got a sponsor. I started going to a, I was going to three meetings a day. So I would go wake up and go to a seven o'clock AA meeting, eat, go to sleep, go back to a 12 o'clock AA meeting, go home, go to sleep, and then go to a five o'clock meeting. And that was how my day would go. Cause that was the only thing that was keeping me sober was that I was accountable to go to these three meetings. Um, but detoxing at home by yourself alone is so, so dangerous. And I, like I said, if I look back, I really should have checked myself into a facility, but I was so stubborn. And so even in the thick of it, wanting to prove that I could do this by myself, um, that I decided to do it at home. So I'm curious to know, like, after you do this two weeks of detox at home, like, what does life look like for you after that? Like, I can't, like, you're just trying to adjust now to kind of this new style of life. There's no more alcohol anymore. So like, what is that like for you? Um, It was very, very hard. Um, So the timing of it, you know, as we look back was crazy because I got sober on January 1st, 2020, or I'm sorry, January 13th. I relapsed on January 1st. 
I, I started a new job. <laughs> so after I went through detox, I had, I started a new job and then the pandemic happened in March. So in that span before the pandemic, I was very adamant about being around other people that were sober. So I had basically, I hadn't told my family knew what was going on, but I didn't tell my friends. So I basically told my friends, I lied and said, Oh, I'm doing like a health cleanse. So no one really questioned me because the first thing that happens when you stop drinking and you're a young woman is people think that you're pregnant. Mm -hmm. So that was the first thing that people started like, are you pregnant? Like, what's going on? And I'm like, no, I'm not. And the thing about a baby is eventually you're going to know, but I'm not, (laughs) you know, (laughs) like you can't hide it for long. But that was the first thing I did was just tell people, oh, I'm doing a cleanse. And so no one really questioned me. But I kind of I slowly stopped hanging out with my friends and started hanging out with like people that I had met in AA that were sober because I was so triggered about being around people that were that had alcohol. And but the flip side of this is kind of two sided is that I did not want to, quote unquote, change myself. So my biggest thing that I was talking to my therapist about was I didn't want to be boring. And in my mind, if you did not drink, you are boring. And so I associated drinking with being fun and lively. And so the biggest thing, the biggest thing that in the beginning held me up was that I didn't want to be boring and I didn't know how to be lively and be fun if I wasn't drinking. That was my association to being fun. So it was really hard for me at first and I I very much isolated. And then obviously the pandemic happened. And if I, I truly, truly in my heart know that if I had have been drinking when the pandemic happened, I truly think I would have died because there would have been no one to stop me. I was already drinking all the time, but I had to hide it. And it was a certain way that I had to do it. If I would have been at home with no one to tell me I couldn't start drinking vodka first thing in the morning, I truly think I would have died. So the timing of it is actually amazing. And I look back and I know that it all happened when it was supposed to happen. Because right at the beginning of lockdown is when I already had a support system. I was already sober. Um, and it, it did make it hard. I'm not going to lie. It, it really was a hard situation to try to be sober when the world is, you know, crashing. But I did it. And I, I definitely think the timing was what it needed to be for me because I got sober on January 13th and then went into lockdown on March 13th. Yeah. Timing, timing is everything. And I, I'm so glad. I know the pandemic for so many people was you know this downfall yes. but for you it actually sounds like it was like your it was your the, the start of your uphill well, battle to sorry. being you know sober yeah but i know so many people unfortunately the pandemic um addiction in the pandemic was heightened there's so many studies about people um that were already you know addicts or alcoholics you know relapsing or people that were not getting into addiction. And so it was a very, very dangerous time. But going back to what you said a few minutes ago, I can definitely relate as an introvert and someone who struggles with social anxiety sometimes, you know, I do have those thoughts like, oh, just, you know, give me a glass of wine and, you know, I'll be, I'll be more likable and I'll be more fun. And so I, like, I've definitely had those thoughts before. So your parents, of course, you know, started to get cued in when you got that DUI. What was their initial response, you know, when they started to, you know, finally realize that the depth of the problem that you were dealing with, did you, did you find your family to be very supportive at first? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Very, very supportive. I think my parents were scared for me. Um, In fact, 
the I got the DUI on in Labor Day weekend, and the day I went back to work, I actually got a promotion. And I remember calling my mom and saying like, oh, guess what? I got a promotion. And she could tell by the tone in my voice, it was very much like, oh, I got a DUI, but look at what happened. Um, and she said, you know, Jessica, I think you're going to die. And even saying that now, it makes me emotional because I, I truly think that she, and she knew that I was going to use that to show that nothing was wrong with me. So even though I had gone to jail over the weekend, when I got back to work, I got promoted and I, she knew I was going to then use that. Um, so she was very scared for me. I think my parents were always supportive. You know, if I wanted to go to rehab, they were going to help me, but, um, they were really just scared for me. Yeah. I can't imagine, you know, even you being an adult, have being a parent and having children like that must just be so scary to watch them go through it. And also knowing that there's nothing you can do. Like they have to make the decision and the realization on their own. Mm -hmm. And it was my, and I, you know, I look back and I think there was so many signs, but also I was an adult. I wasn't living with them. Like I was very much able to hide from them the scope of what was happening. But once they knew, then it made so much sense to them because I had stopped answering their phone calls at night because I would be too drunk. So like I had put in these kind of safeguards to try to hide what was happening from them, knowing that they were, you know, miles and miles away. So it wasn't like they were going to see me, but I had like, basically I'd set up this whole, like after eight o'clock, I wasn't answering my family's phone calls because I would be too drunk. So, you know, after, after you get the DUI and you, you know, you go through your two weeks of detox and you start hanging out with your new AA friends was there ever a time when you, you know, started openly disclosing to people who had been part of your past that were outside of your family and kind of, you know, what was that experience like for you? Yes. And it took time. So there was a lot of like, I guess, shame there and that I didn't want to tell people what was really going on. But it, I did. I eventually did open up to people and say like, by the way, I'm sober now. I don't drink anymore. Um, the word forever was very triggering to me. Like the thought of saying I was never going to drink ever again. I was like very triggering. So I was like, Oh, I don't drink anymore for right now. Um, knowing though, like I've come to the realization that I never, I need to never have another drink. Um, and that's okay. But I definitely hit it for quite some time. And then when I, when I decided to tell people, um, I kind of did it in a phase of like telling certain friends and trying to gauge their response. And they were all very supportive and receptive to it. Um, but it did become a thing because when I would go out with them, like, you know, I was used to being the one that was like drinking the most. And so now when I go out, it's like, I might have a mocktail. I might just have water or Dr. Pepper. And eventually I want to leave before everybody else starts to get drunk because it's no longer fun for me. And so I decided to start, I disclosed it to certain people. And then I decided to just disclose it to everyone. And part of this was because of my therapist, because secrecy for me is a way to get around things. So I knew if I didn't tell everyone then I could still get out of it because I could just start back drinking and no one would see the problem with it besides my family. And for me to stay sober, I had to be sober out loud. And so eventually I decided I'm going to make a post about it on Instagram. And obviously that's where all my friends would see it, you know, all of this. So I did that and I, the response was positive, but then it made it to where I felt like I couldn't back out. 
Because if I kept it a secret that I was sober at any time, I could decide I was going to drink again and nobody would question it. But now, like now, you know, almost three years in, if I were to start drinking again, it would be a big deal to everyone in my life. Everyone would know, everyone would question me, and it almost keeps me accountable. Yeah, accountability is so beautiful and that respect. And it's definitely not on the same level as to your journey, but it's definitely accountability is really what helped me get this project that I'm working on right now with Not Your Average Code off the ground because I was kind of just, you know, thinking about it for about two years and just kept putting it off. And then finally, I was like, you know, if I start telling people about it, if I start asking people to be on the show, like I have to go through with it. Yeah. I can't back out. So. <laughs> so yeah, I definitely, I get it. And, you know, I, I love that aspect of accountability. And so was LinkedIn kind of the same thing for you? So you mentioned that you shared on Instagram. And of course, we met through the post that you put on LinkedIn. Was that kind of the same? Was it the same intention when you shared on LinkedIn? It was. And I think um, the share on Instagram, I think I had been sober maybe about six months. So it was very much earlier on. And the share on uh, LinkedIn was more recent. And I I think building it up, I built it up on LinkedIn and I had talked to friends about it and it was more out there. And I talk about it at my job. So I, I had talked about me being sober. For example, we had an offsite and one of the accommodations I asked for was that they made, they made mocktails for, cause I'm not the only one that doesn't drink. Um, and so I was like, you know, this is a dietary, I consider it a dietary restriction and that like I want to have options when we have happy hours. I don't want to have to drink water. And so so I made that known to the whole organization that like, hey, we're going to have mocktails for people like me that don't drink. Um, and so I had very much been talking about it. So everyone in my life knew. But I decided to make that LinkedIn post because I had had so many people reach out to me um, that knew that I was sober, that felt like they couldn't say anything at their jobs. And so for context, I'm a vice president of people. And I know that with that comes power and that I can say things about work that maybe some people can't say in their their position or at their company. So the whole reason I decided to make that LinkedIn post was to basically say, hey, I'm a VP of people and I am an alcoholic. And I know a lot of people can't say this, but this was my story. Uh, and the response was, uh, it, like the post went viral and I hadn't, I was shocked. I, in one day got over 200 messages from people that most of them were saying, Hey, I can't comment on your post. I can't like your post, but I also am, am in the thick of alcoholism. Wow. That's first of all, that's so inspiring that you were able to impact that many people. I also think that it's very unfortunate that people can't have a safe space of coming out and disclosing like you have like and I, I, I like I love that you lean into that you know that fact that you do have this privilege because one I think just in general people think of privilege as being a negative thing two as people of color we're usually the ones telling other people that they have their privilege so you know to, <laughs> I just think it's so awesome that you lean into that fact and you own that do you like kind of looking back on yourself throughout your journey do you wish that you had disclosed earlier on do you have advice for someone who may not have the privilege of being a senior leader for if they're considering disclosing that's a that's a really good question no i think the, i think the way that i went about it and now kind of speaking on it and talking about it more um 
is definitely helping people. But I, I recognize I actually know someone uh, in my life right now that would wants to talk about it, but uh, does not feel like it would be well received at her job and her job might be in jeopardy. And mm-hmm. so to those people, I say, have a sense of community outside of work. And so I strongly believe in um, like the AA program or there's another group I attend called the Luckiest Club, um, where it's just online sobriety support meetings. So I think having those connections outside of work are so, so important. But if you feel unsafe talking about it at work or if you feel like your job is going to be um, in danger, then then I totally understand not speaking up. I, I, I truly do. Um, but it, to your point, it's so unfortunate that that's the case. Hey, GOAT fans. I can't believe it, but we are already starting to prep for season two. So if you're interested in being a guest on Not Your Average GOAT and are ready to share your story with the world, please reach out. You can submit a request at notyouraveragegoat.org forward slash contact. You know, outside of your job as VP, outside of this, um, you know, journey to becoming sober, you also are the CEO and founder of a mission-based organization out there to help minorities, especially females of color, you know, kind of find upward mobility within their career, find new opportunities. Can you talk a little bit about that company, how you started it and the motivation and kind of like what you're trying to accomplish with it? Yeah. So 2020 was a big year for me. <laughs> I got sober and then I started a business. Um, so this happened right around the time uh, that George Floyd was murdered. I was personally out protesting. I was doing a lot of uh, donations and trying to work with organizations and all of that stuff. And then I sat back and thought, what could I do long-term when it comes to diversity and inclusion. And I know the corporate workspace like the back of my hand. Like I have been in it for 11 years. I know how to play the quote unquote game. And so I sat back and thought, I can help women, uh, particularly women's of, women of color, get into corporate workspaces because I am tired of being the only person that looks like me in the room. So there have been so many instances. Um, I actually worked at a company where I was the only black person in the entire company. And it was so unfortunate and sad to see. And my experience there was very interesting. But um I sat and thought, what could I do? And so I founded Hidden Gem Career Coaching, and I specialize in helping women of color. So through career coaching, resume writing, um, assisting with performance reviews, because as we know, performance reviews are very important when it comes to promotion opportunities. Um, so I help with that. Um, I've helped people with their active job search. So that's also a part of it. Um, even some confidence coaching is uh, really important when we're talking about interviewing. So yes, I found it in, in November 1st, 2020. So that's why I said 2020 was a busy year for me. I got sober and decided I wanted to, you know, save the world. <laughs> <laughs> that's so awesome. I, I love this so much, especially, you know, personally being a female of color. And I know that, you know, for us, it's, it's very challenging sometimes to be in corporate America, not just because of, you know, white males, but also, you know, you know, typically a lot of, you know, white females get promoted and get those opportunities before we do. So that can be a very challenging thing for, for us to have to, to work through. Without giving away like any of your secret sauce, do you have any specific tips for females of color who might be looking to move forward in their career that you can share? Yeah. So one of the things I even think is 
people realizing that they need a coach. So I've had conversations with people where they're like, oh, I, you know, I, I don't think I need this. And my response is, did you know that most people in a C-suite have a coach? Most executives, I, every CEO I've ever worked with has an executive coach. And so it's interesting to me that people that are in the C-suite are open to coaching, but other people are like, oh, I don't need that. And I don't know if it's, you know, a sense of shame of like, well, why would I need career coaching? I truly believe everyone needs coaching. I myself have, have had and have a coach and a mentor. And so I think getting away from that stigma of like, oh, I don't need any support. Yes, you do. Everyone needs it. Um, so that's, I think, the first part. And then the second part is, in, I would say what I tell my clients a lot is when you're interviewing, you need to have your story together. So your resume is basically a fact finding. These are the things that you've done. But when you get the interview is when you need to be able to verbalize your story. So your story is why are you here? What problem are you here to fix? What transferable skills do you have? And so even writing out the story when they ask you, tell me about yourself or all of those things, that is the most important, one of the most important parts. And so that would be my tip is literally write it out, type it up, whatever you need to do. This is the story that you're going to tell about yourself and why you are going to help because job openings are because there's a problem. You're there to fix the problem. So write a story in that context. That's really great advice. And I personally will be honest and say, you know, I've definitely had that thought of like, I don't like, I don't think I need a career coach. Like, you know, I've done pretty well so far. So um, yeah, I definitely, you know, and I, I think it's, you know, sometimes, you know, pride, sometimes like shame, like if you have a coach, like, like why, why do you need a coach? Why do you need help? Like what's wrong with you? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I will, I will definitely put myself out there and say, I've definitely had those thoughts before. Do you have any specific kind of advice for leaders who are in privileged positions and, and kind of thinking about people who are not part of the minority community for how to better elevate and empower their um, female minority employees? I think it comes with the self-awareness. So I think even just being aware when you look, when you go into a room and you need to look around and see who's not in this room. So for example, I have been in a room where I literally was the only woman and the only person of color. So I was sitting in a room with all white men. So in those situations, like think about how that made me feel being in that room, but also Think about what they could have done to one, make me feel comfortable and two, make sure that that was not the case. So even if you are a leader, a position of power, look at who's in the room, who's in the room with you and then make a note of why. Why are there not other women? Why are there not people of color? Why is there no one at your organization that is openly talking about um, LGBTQ issues? You know, like what is going on where people feel like they can't talk about these things? So one is even being self-aware and two is a lot of companies right now are all about diversity. Diversity is truly just the numbers. So you're talking about bringing people in, but they're missing the sense of belonging. So you can bring, bring all the black women that you want into your organization, but if they do not feel like they belong, they're not going to stay. So people are missing the mark. It's very important. I truly understand when it comes to recruitment, you want to get numbers, but once they get there, do they belong? And that's where we need to be focusing. Yeah. I love that you bring that up because I think creating this holistic DE&I culture is something that 
corporate America especially still struggles with. So what is it then that, you know, companies like what's like a tangible step that a company can do to try to create that sense of inclusion and belonging? I think a really one, a a really good one that a lot of companies are doing are um, employee resource groups or some people call them affinity groups. So these are a sense of community so that when people come, they can talk to other people that they identify with. So for example, where I work at right now, we have a group called Refine Black. And so it's for our Black employees. So when a new Black employee joins their first day, they are in a group with all the other Black employees. And it gives them a sense of community. So even if you focus on starting ERGs and they can, ERGs can be about anything. So we have an ERG for working parents because that's a segment of people that need support and community. We have an ERG for neurodiverse employees. So myself, I identify that is dyslexic and I suffer from de- uh, anxiety and depression. So I can talk to other neurodivergent employees or like I just gave the example about black employees. So it can be about anything, but the sense of community is what's needed. Now, I'm curious to get your thoughts on, do you think the onus of really expanding DEI falls on the ERGs or is that still something that should, you know, the C-suite should still own? Like where does that accountability lay? Oh, absolutely. It's the, le- the leadership team is accountable. The affinity groups are there for it to help with community, but they should all have an executive sponsor who's somebody on the executive team and they are the ones who own it. So Jessica, I think this has been such like an, an amazing conversation. I think there's so many tidbits and nuggets to take away from your journey. And one thing I like to ask people because the show is called Not Your Average Goat. And so goat meaning greatest of all time because I am a football nerd. And <laughs> <laughs> but I love to know, you know, the people I'm bringing on here, I, I kind of see as goats based on their journey and, and their ability to inspire other people. So I'd like to know kind of like through your life, who or maybe what has been your biggest inspiration and why? Oh, that's such a good one. I'm inspired by so much. I would say if I had to pick one, I would definitely say Michelle Obama just because I'm obsessed with her. Um, but I also think uh, I recently, I've read her book many times about becoming. And so as I think about my journey right now, I am becoming who I was always meant to be. So there were points that, you know, there's always valleys and peaks and all of that. But I think I went through the valley of my addiction and my perfectionism. And now I'm getting help for all of those things and I'm in a much better place. So I'm becoming who I want to be, who I was meant to be all along. And I, and I, I know that it's, I'm not where I'm not at the end of that. I'm not at the peak. I still see so many more things that I could do, but I, just the whole concept of becoming and that you don't have to be a finished product is so amazing. So that, that would be what I would say. I love that so much. Yeah. I think if we could all see each other and ourselves as kind of work in progress, then I think we would all, you know, continuously strive for improvement. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Jessica, for your time today. I've really enjoyed talking to you and I'm, you know, I can't wait for others to hear your story. I love it. Thank you so much. This has been an amazing conversation. Not Your Average Goat is produced and edited by yours truly with music by Sergey Quadrado and Anton Blazov. 
All content is copyrighted and should not be recreated, reproduced, or reused without explicit consent. Please visit notravagegoat.org forward slash contact for questions.